Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi speaking to you from my apartment in Brooklyn, New York. There's been some hopeful reports that we've passed the peak of the coronavirus crisis here and also in other parts of the world and other parts of the country. But of course, that doesn't mean we're entirely out of the woods. Attention is turning to vulnerable populations, particularly those people who are imprisoned. Because of their confined space, they are more likely to be at risk for infection. One of the nation's most outspoken voices about incarceration has been Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. Our assistant editor, Regina Munch, spoke with Larry Krasner earlier this year about his work to reduce the number of people who are incarcerated and what effect mass incarceration has on communities. We'll be speaking with her in a moment. This is the Commonweal Podcast. I'm here with assistant editor Regina Munch. And Regina, you're actually down in Philadelphia. How are things in your city? Okay. I think we're at or near the peak of the coronavirus crisis. So we're hoping that things don't get too much worse. I'm really interested in hearing this interview. So maybe you could sort of set the stage a little bit and kind of tie it to what's going on right now. Sure. So since we talked in February with Larry Krasner, the coronavirus has obviously dominated headlines all the time. And Krasner has actually been at the forefront of trying to address the crisis that will be harmful, particularly for prison populations. Coronavirus is spreading in the Philadelphia prison population at five times the rate of the rest of the city. So Krasner's office, the DA's office, has compiled a list of inmates eligible for early release, like nonviolent offenders who have served their minimum, people who are being held in pretrial for nonviolent offenses, the elderly, the ill, and some juvenile defenders, with the idea of keeping fewer people in prison while the coronavirus is spreading because they're held at such close quarters. Okay, so why don't we take a listen to the interview? Larry, could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be the district attorney of Philadelphia? Sure. So it's a little weird. (laughs) I think the short version is that I am the son of a secular Jewish man Mm -hmm. and a woman who attended seminary as essentially a Protestant tent evangelist Mm -hmm. and having a mother who, you know, had studied Aramaic and had a deep knowledge of the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament and other sacred books, was was eye-opening. It was really a pretty great way to grow up. I was a county public defender for three years, a federal defender, meaning I did nothing but federal cases for two years, and then I started my own law firm, which I continued with for 25 years. Some of the work I did there was court-appointed. Some of that work was retained, private criminal defense, and some of the work I did was actually civil rights plaintiff's civil work, in other words, filing lawsuits against governmental entities for having violated people's civil rights. More specifically, it was frequently lawsuits to hold Philadelphia police officers and the Philadelphia Police Department and the city accountable for corruption, for brutality, for framing innocent people, and things of that sort. So as DA, you actively worked against the, quote, tough-on-crime policies that prosecutors have been championing for decades. Why did you run explicitly against those sorts of policies? You know, as a very active trial lawyer who was in court four to five days a week for 30 years, I wasn't just seeing what happened with my cases. I was seeing 
what happens in a courtroom with all of these other people's cases. And what I saw over those 30 years was kind of a slow-motion car crash. Politics of tough on crime meant you always seek the highest sentence, and you try to put as many people in jail for as long as possible because this supposedly makes us safer. That's not what I saw at all. What I saw was that a lot of those policies were causing crime and were derailing young people who often had made mistakes that were no different than the mistakes that are made in more affluent neighborhoods but are not enforced against. Um, you know, I actually viewed the system the way it was working as an engine of social destruction, destruction of society, but also increasing crime, destruction of particular communities in particular neighborhoods, you know, none of which is exactly what I read when I was reading about the least of these in Sunday school or when I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. This is not really how I thought it was supposed to be. Could you tell me about some specific reforms you've made and that you're working to make? So, you know, I think fundamentally the entire approach is based on a belief in equality, a belief that people should be treated equally, and that power needs to be exercised with restraint, and that the truth is paramount. And when you take those three and mix them together, it brings you to certain inescapable conclusions. It is absolutely essential to get more people out of jail. We have a ridiculously incarcerated society, which is completely at odds with our notions of individual rights and freedom, and incredibly destructive. So, for example, we have come with a variety of policies around sentencing that are against mandatory sentencing and they're against sentencing guidelines that push judges to sentences that are higher than the sentences those judges would independently select. We have, in our sentencing policies, also taken steps so that our attorneys do not seek incredibly long periods of supervision, by which I mean parole and probation, mm -hmm. because the science is quite clear that that's destructive and that shorter periods of supervision specifically three years and less, are helpful. But when you get past three years in general, it's harmful, and it's more likely to cause crime and put people back into custody than to reduce it. Why would we do anything that makes more crime and costs a lot more money that could go to public schools or it could go to other things that actually build up society? So the number of future years of supervision on parole and probation is coming close to being about 70% less. Mm -hmm than prior administrations. That is the only way you actually change mass incarceration. Counting the number of heads in jail doesn't do it because some of those heads are there for another two days and some of them are there for life. But if what you do is you look at it as a system and you understand that the future years of incarceration that we're generating are the bill that we're going to have to pay later, and it is a bill that it costs you know, something on the order of $50,000 a year to keep a human being in a cell, then you want those cells to be for the people who really need to be there, not for all kinds of other people who don't need to be there, whose futures will only be made worse, who will only be driven towards crime. There are some other things that certainly have attracted attention. One of them is that we have a specialist in immigration, mm -hmm. and we have a specialist because, number one, the United States Supreme Court says that people who have immigration consequences must know what they're doing when they enter a guilty plea in a criminal courtroom. So we need to have a specialist who can explain that and understand that. But number two, 
we need to make sure we don't create a class of immigrants who are unwilling and unable to participate in the criminal justice system so that when they are victims, they do not go to the police and they do not go to the courthouse for fear of their own Mm -hmm. deportation. And when they are defendants, they do not simply run Mm -hmm. because they should be accountable and they should go to the courts like anybody else and be accountable. And the way to achieve this is by understanding that equality is not the same as identical treatment. The consequence of the accountability is equal, even if that means there may be an adjustment of some aspect, a slightly different charge that's just as serious or a slightly different type of sentence that is just as serious as what we would offer a U.S. citizen, but all of which avoid some kind of truly draconian and disproportionately negative immigration consequence. That's a, you know, that is, that falls in a category of efforts that we are making to make sure that everyone can participate and that the system is trustworthy mm-hmm. and so that people are protected. And it has benefits to U.S. citizens as well, because if you have an undocumented immigrant who is a witness to a crime committed against a U.S. citizen, even one committed by a U.S. citizen, we need that witness to be able to come forward mm-hmm. and to testify. And that is not what we're getting from the federal policy around immigration. What we're getting from the federal policy around immigration is that they're painting a target on the back of every undocumented immigrant. You know, we have a different view of the death penalty. Defense attorneys in two separate cases where there was a death sentence filed a brief arguing that the way the death penalty is imposed in Pennsylvania is unconstitutional under Pennsylvania law. A little over 40 years ago, the United States Supreme Court said that all across the country, the way the death penalty was imposed was unconstitutional under the federal constitution. And then after all these different states changed their laws, the U.S. Supreme Court essentially said, okay, that's better. And so we have seen what has happened with this new law in Pennsylvania ever since over the last 40 years. Pennsylvania Supreme Court a long time ago said that law looks okay to us. But there's a difference between the way it looks 40 years ago and the way it looks in practice. And what we have seen in practice is that it's unconstitutional because the Constitution and the law around it says that it should be reserved for the worst offenders committing the worst crimes. And that's not what we see. What we see is that it disproportionately is for the blackest and brownest offenders, the poorest offenders, and the ones who are the most mentally impaired. It is definitely not directed at the worst offenders committing the worst crimes. And in fact, it has been so flawed over the last 40 years that 72% of all the death sentences that were passed down have been reversed by the Pennsylvania appellate courts who found that the lawyering was so deficient or the process was so unfair, it didn't even meet current standards. So here we have the ultimate penalty, and we have a ridiculous level of failure. You know, ordinarily convictions and decisions that are made in criminal cases are upheld on appeal about 95% of the time. Here we have cases being upheld about 28% Mm -hmm. of the time. And we're going to do what? We're going to take those people and we're going to give them lethal injection? So we did our job, which is that we had a deadline. We had to answer what these defense attorneys said. We did a very, very, very close analysis of every Philadelphia death penalty in the last 40 years before our administration because we wanted to make sure that no one would say that because of our philosophy or whatever we did while we were in office, 
that changes the result. The results I'm telling you were based on everything that happened before we came in and we did what the law required, which is that we said that under the Constitution, it is obvious that the way that the death penalty is imposed in Pennsylvania, it is arbitrary, it is capricious, it is not reserved for the worst of the worst, and therefore it does not meet minimal constitutional standards. You talk a lot about the importance of keeping communities together and how disruptive mass incarceration is for communities when we don't prosecute marijuana possession or diverting, as your office has, some low-level violations to social services or addiction treatment instead. What effect does that have on communities? In general, taking a public health approach to things like drug use has been shown internationally to be a more successful approach to addressing those issues for calling it an illness, then why exactly is our remedy for this illness a jail cell? How does it affect society? I want you to think about an area in Philadelphia, and we have them, that is an area of concentrated poverty, where there are high levels of incarceration for the types of offenses that never would have had you in jail in 1960 and 1950 and 1970. And those offenses include offenses of addiction. And so what you actually have in that neighborhood, and this is just one of many consequences, is a population that is 60% women and 40% men. Because so many of the young men, rather than being at jobs or in the community, forming relationships and forming families are locked up. The consequences of that can be pretty far-reaching. To take whole swaths of young men in certain neighborhoods and make them unable participate in the economy to guarantee because they've obtained a felony conviction very young for something that was nonviolent and not that serious to make to make it a certainty that they will be largely unemployable the rest of their lives means that they can't be the providers that they would have been. One of the people I think is most interesting on this topic is John Pfaff, P-F-A-F-F, mm-hmm. who is at sort of law school and economist, wrote a wonderful book called Locked In. And he is now in the process of, of writing a book. I hope he won't be mad that I said this. But <laughs> writing a book that's going to take him a few years in which he talks about all the costs of mass incarceration, not just the money, but its consequences in so many different dimensions. It's big. When you start locking up people for periods of time and breaking their relationships with being able to make an income, with jobs, with family, with friends, with community, when you start to have a lot of young men who don't have role models around, when you start to impede formation of families and uh, people being able to provide for those families, you do a hell of a lot of damage. Underneath a lot of these debates uh, and our national debate about criminal justice seems to be the issue of what justice is. Some people call you, quote, soft on crime as opposed to tough on crime. And their definition seems to be going after bad guys who don't follow the rules. What does justice look like to you, and what is a DA's role in particular in pursuing it? So my sworn oath, and I think it's the oath of pretty much every chief prosecutor in the United States, is to seek justice. Unfortunately, the oath doesn't really break down the specifics of what that means. But I can tell you I thought about it a lot, and I kind of see a few dimensions to it. First of all, it doesn't say seek justice solely for the victim of a crime, be it serious and violent or less serious. It doesn't say seek justice solely for the people in the courtroom. 
It's had two seat justice. Philadelphia is 1.6 million people, which means the vast majority of people whose justice is in the balance in any particular case are not actually involved directly in that particular case. They are out there in society. And they are, for example, little kids in schools who have a class size that is too big, 35 kids. So as we make decisions about what happens in the courtroom, we're making those decisions too. You know, if you drive around Philadelphia, if you did it when I was running for office and you look, there were four sale signs on public school buildings all over the city of Philadelphia. There was a fire sale going on. And it was going on because, frankly, we have a public school system where only about half of our kids make it through high school. It's a bit of a disaster. Mm. That money is somewhere, and I know where it is. It is in taking cases, and there are some cases where it is unnecessary to lock people up and locking people up. And it is in spending all of these resources in the sixth largest city having what is usually the fourth largest police force. That money means something. And we have to, as an aspect of our justice, be stewards of how that's, that money is used. We've seen this radical increase in incarceration in the last 40 years that is completely out of sorts with what was going on for decades before that. I mean, Pennsylvania has seen an increase of 800 mm. percent in its jail population without, in my view, perceptible improvement in public safety. So as we start talking about what justice really means, it really means using resources in ways that are geared towards equality. They're geared towards building the beloved society. And that means that you have to use them wisely. Your office has worked with local activists who've been working on these issues for decades. How do you work with local activists and what have you learned from them? Part of my peculiar history is that when I was in private practice for 25 years, I had kind of a professional hobby of representing protesters and activists who were trying to bring about uh, improvements in society nonviolently through protest, direct action, free speech, and things of that sort. Philadelphia was very intolerant, despite being a place where we have national parks dedicated to freedom and being a place where some pretty important documents like the Constitution were written. It had an ugly history of clamping down on people who simply wanted to be heard. And I felt that it was consistent with my civil rights mission and also something I really enjoyed to defend them when they were arrested, which they frequently were, charged with crimes, which they were, and taken to trial in Philadelphia. And therefore, I developed close relationships with a lot of activists in Philadelphia over a very long period of time. These became colleagues, friends, people I valued. And when I made the highly unexpected decision to run for DA, they were there. They were in my corner for the campaign. And they were also there when we were in office. And often they were there in the posture of saying, okay, well, that's nice, but you need to do more. Or we like the fact that we got four of our list of demands, but we got three more we want right now, right? The relationship shifted, but I think in a way that was very constructive. And I've always viewed my role not so much as being the leader of any movement, but as being a technician for the movement that others lead. Philadelphia's violent crime rate is very high compared to other cities, with, I think, the worst homicide rate of the nation's 10 largest cities. And there's an argument going around now about blaming your policies for these homicides. What do you say to those people who are making that argument? We have a spike in shootings and homicides. Mm -hmm. We have seen 
significant decline in other important violent crimes like rape. And if you actually look at what happened in the last two years, which is the time we have been in office, there was a 4 to 5% decline in violent crime overall the first year. And then there was an increase of about the same percent in the second year, bringing us back to even with where we started. In terms of, and I understand that, you know, that, that does not solve the problem at all because these issues with shootings and homicides is tremendously important. But it is also a fact that there has been an increase in homicides for essentially seven consecutive years, meaning five years before we were in office, it was increasing year after year, and it was increasing under an administration that had a very, you know, quote, tough on crime, unquote, I would call it dumb on crime, <laughs> but a very tough on, quote, tough on crime, unquote, approach. I see no evidence at all that our policies, which for the most part have treated serious crimes, shootings, homicides as being very serious crimes and as requiring appropriately lengthy sentences of incarceration. So what you're really hearing is not criminological fact. What you're really hearing is politics. Mm -hmm. The same politics that they dropped on Kim Fox, a progressive DA in Chicago during her first couple years in office because they also had an extremely high rate of homicides and shootings going on at that time. But they're quieter now because there have been very significant declines in those numbers the last two years, even though she's a progressive and she's been in office longer now than when she was in office when you know Donald Trump was yelling and screaming and talking about sending in the National Guard. Chicago did some things right, like dropped $75 million into community-based organizations to get at the cause of the violence and a few other things that have turned out to be successful. It is my expectation that this seven-year increase in homicides and in shootings will reduce at some point, but we are up against it in a way that even Chicago is not because we are the poorest of the 10 largest cities, have been for a very long time, and we have a historical decades-long higher level of violent crime than other cities do in large part to that poverty and to the, the failure of a safety net. We have a saying around here, and I'm going to stick with it because I believe it, which is that poverty equals bullets. And I believe that's true. There are things that we can do at the level of enforcement, and there are certainly things that we can do in the short term, but the long-term solutions in the city of Philadelphia have been ignored for decades, and they are solutions about going after poverty, about addressing failures in public education, about dealing with entrenched racism that has given us our segregated neighborhoods and areas of concentrated poverty. You brought up President Trump. Both President Trump and Attorney General Bill Barr have criticized your policies publicly. How do you see local city politics in relation to our national debates? President Trump has done this to me. He's done it to Kim Fox. He's done it to other progressive prosecutors in cities that have a large population of people of color, and he's done it very deliberately for a very simple reason, which is that this is the new Southern strategy. And what I mean by that is it was admitted a long time ago, very openly, that Richard Nixon's strategy, the Southern strategy, was essentially to use the N-word without using the N-word. It was to rev up racism and hatred, and the words that he was seizing on at the time were about war on drugs, marijuana, things of that sort, 
as a way of saying the same racist stuff that was no longer okay to say. Well, that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing now. He has been playing footsie with white supremacists for a long time. We all know that. He is a racist. We all know that. And so the phrase that they are using is lawlessness. Lawlessness. That there is lawlessness in Chicago. There's lawlessness in Philadelphia, even if the statistics don't support this. It's exactly what you think it is. It's part of a political strategy to get him reelected by animating people's fear. This is Willie Horton politics. And they're at it again. We didn't somehow just get their attention because there's such a big, you know, violent crime spike in a city where actually violent crime overall is level. This is dirty politics, and they're going to do it. They're going to do it all the way through November, and it will be up to a lot of us progressive district attorneys to answer that with facts and science. Okay. Larry Krasner, thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>